0: This morning we continue our sermon series on the recently approved vision frame uh, uh, by our session. Uh, through their work we defined a new mission statement. We elevated uh, values uh, that have always been a part of our church. We've determined a strategy to fulfill that mission and even discovered ways to measure uh, our spiritual growth. And so we're moving through that in our sermon series. Uh, We talked uh, a few weeks ago about our new mission statement, which is connecting people to Jesus, the spring of life. Last week, we talked about our first value that we came up with, which was seeking God's presence. And today, we are talking about our second value, which is growing uh, deeper. Uh, And we read this morning from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans At the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. And Paul writes this to the people in Rome. "Therefore, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Jesus never calls us to remain the same. He always calls us to grow. Uh, When I was around six or seven years old, my parents took me and my brother uh, to the recently built uh, Cecil B. Day Butterfly Center at Callaway Gardens in South Georgia, uh, has anybody ever been there? Yeah, okay, a lot of y'all. Um, so at the time in the late '80s, uh, there was only three butterfly conservatory centers uh, in, the, in the entire country. And my parents thought, well, that sounds like fun to go to, and it's close to home-ish. We lived in the Gwinnett, so it wasn't that close, but we went, and it was wonderful, and it was remarkable. Uh, I remember walking into a huge greenhouse that felt like a rainforest or a steamy bathroom after a shower. And we went in the middle of the summer, so it was kind of like we went into this air-conditioned section, then we went right back out into the heat. Uh, I learned uh, this week that they maintain the temperature at 82 degrees Fahrenheit and 74% humidity uh, year-round. Those are ideal conditions for butterflies to thrive. When you walk in, when we walked in then, there were hundreds of butterflies floating through the air. They were gliding on wings of colored dust. They were landing on bits of fruit or tropical flowers or sometimes even an outstretched hand. Uh, One time, uh, a butterfly landed on my little sister's head, and we were all so jealous about that. Uh, So the experience, again, it's wonderful because you've entered their world And their world is beautiful. I always loved walking around hoping against hope that that one butterfly would land on me too. Uh, It would feel like a miracle. Because there's nothing you could do to make a butterfly land on you. You can't entice a butterfly. You can't sweet talk a butterfly to land on you. You just can't do it. But it would bring such joy. Sadly, uh, no matter how many times we went, the wonder and the joy faded as we neared the exit. So before you left, you could look through these windows and see hundreds of cocoons lined up in compartments against the wall. Now, if you were lucky on that day, you'd see a butterfly emerge into a new creation. Uh, But without fail, there's always some that never fully made it through the process. For some inexplicable reason, they didn't transform. They went into the cocoon and then they Died. To me, this was horrible, because even as a kid, I knew that butterflies were designed to be free. They were designed to grow into something more than they were to flourish and to fill the world with their beauty. For them to just die, failing to leave the safety and the comfort of their cocoon felt like some great tragedy. Even when I was a kid, it made me so sad. The Apostle Paul would have understood my grief. Having met Jesus as he traveled on the road to Damascus with plans to persecute and kill believers and eliminate the early church, Paul understands the transformation that occurs when a person experiences God's mercy and grace. In fact, most of Paul's letters revolve around this one spiritual reality, that Jesus sets us free so that we might become God's true children. Just like butterflies are not meant to remain in the cocoon, Jesus did not die so we could remain where we have always been on a spiritual level. Even if we aren't uh, consumed by sin or entirely directed by evil. Even if our lives are comfortable and even good, even if we do good things, our God desires something so much more for his children. Our God desires that we might taste and experience and embody internal, eternal life. In fact, that is why Jesus died. Jesus died so that we might live Charles Wesley sums up the gospel promise in his uh, Christmas hymn uh, like this. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Jesus came so that we might become new creations. Now on one level, this is wonderful news. We are called to more than just mere survival in this broken world. But this also holds an implicit promise that makes a lot of us, especially if we're content or used to things uh, in this world, a little bit nervous. We are called to change and be transformed. For the rebellious children of God, the invitation of Jesus calls us to set aside our patterns of sin and selfishness and learn what it means to truly follow Jesus. Only then will we understand the nature and purpose of the new life that Jesus offers to all believers. True discipleship, authentic faith is about growth because God never stops calling us to be more like Jesus. The true measure of faith comes from moving beyond where we currently are, who we currently are, past everything we've known before and into a new character. C.S. Lewis uh, echoes Paul when he writes in Mere Christianity that God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men and women of the old kind, but to produce a brand new humanity. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but turning a horse into a winged creature. Each of us each of us sitting in this room are called to move closer to God and continue the process we know as sanctification, what believers throughout history have known as learning to be more like their Savior. See, we've already been justified. We've already been made right with God by what Jesus has done on the cross. And the work of the Holy Spirit in us slowly but surely conforms our heart our soul, our mind, to resemble the character of our Savior. Accepting Jesus as our Lord is not actually the end of faith. That's not the end of the story. It is the beginning of a lifelong transformation into children of his kingdom that reflect his values and truth into a broken world desperate for good news. In these two uh, short verses, Paul wants to encourage believers in the early church to remember the primary goal of faith is transformation. But he also wants them to be aware how easy it is to grow in the wrong direction. He understands that Jesus frees us to grow, but none of us drift into spiritual health either. Without a conscious choice, we are more likely to move away from Jesus simply because we don't know how to move towards him. Absent a deliberate decision to learn more about God and make his ways our own, we typically choose the path of least resistance. We make spiritual growth dependent on our own fluctuating feelings or or circumstances Following Jesus, though, requires us to make choices that go against the internal inclination of our hearts. Living the way our God uh, desires and commands doesn't come naturally, so people never take those next steps into the abundant life that Jesus promised. We are like very confused plants. We seek out life in dark places rather than the sun that shines so brightly Above us. The greatest danger, however, is that sin hijacks the human instinct to grow because we are always growing in one way or another. Jesus calls us to grow in Him and through Him and like Him to become people that reflect His love and a grace and joy and hope to the world. But if we're not intentionally growing towards Him, we are. In fact, growing towards something else. We are each always being taught, being formed by something. We see this principle in uh, parenting, but it applies no matter our age. If we are not teaching our kids uh, or grandkids about Jesus, they are still being taught by something or someone else. They are being taught by their world by the world, by their friends, by the shows they watch, the music to which they listen to, uh, or whatever upside-down lessons the algorithms of social media desires to teach them that day. And those things are not reliable. The question is not whether we will grow, but how are we growing? In which direction are we growing? In which way are we being formed? Paul tells us that we must be conformed To the heart of Jesus. Every choice we make about what to consume or experience forms our souls and our minds in a particular way. Just like a diet of of only junk food leads to poor health, a diet based on the attitudes and ideals and values of a broken world inevitably leads to a confused faith. The danger is the environment in which we live, conforming us to the ways of the world rather than the ways of Jesus. James K. Smith says the church works as an antidote to this below-the-surface formation, helping us be spiritual non-conformists in a broken but all-too-influential world. He writes, Christian worship is essentially a counter-formation to those rival Liturgies that we're immersed in, cultural practices that capture our hearts, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of what it means to be really human. Our environment is not just formative, it's all too often deformative. Even if our direction is just slightly off course, uh, if we end up growing in ways that are more toxic than healthy, uh, we can uh, still get into a lot of trouble. In 1914, the United States Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in a nautical disaster in January of that same year. So in thick fog off the Virginia coast, the merchant vessel in Nantucket rammed and sank the steamship Monroe. Uh, Forty-one sailors lost their lives in the winter waters of the Atlantic. Now, the captain of the Nantucket was charged with neglect, but the trial revealed that Edward Johnson, the captain of the Monroe, had navigated his ship into dangerous shipping lanes with a compass that was at least two degrees off of magnetic north. He was just that little bit off. He said the instrument was sufficient to direct most journeys, but also admitted He'd never adjusted the compass as long he'd been as long as he'd been captain, and he'd never really uh, uh, steered the ship in such dense fog. So what seemed adequate for normal operation led to an avoidable tragedy when precise direction was required. Even worse was the unspoken danger that kind of hung over the trial, uh, because what if this compass had been used to traverse? an ocean. See, two degrees isn't much when you're traveling up the coast uh, for a short journey in clear weather, but it would lead you to a completely different country or even a continent across a large distance. Our hearts operate in the same manner. We are always growing. We are always moving towards something. But sin misorients the direction of our hearts, sometimes even just a little bit. But it always leads us astray. On our own, we grow haphazardly here and there, stumbling into the ways of life just as often as we stumble into the ways of death. But the language Paul uses to remind believers of our obligation to grow also carries incredible hope. Two words reframe our understanding of transformation, shifting the balance away from our own effort onto the internal supernatural work of Jesus, reshaping us from the inside out. So the word used for transformation uh, that Paul uses for transformation here is used only four times in the New Testament, twice by Paul in his letters, once here and once uh, in Corinthians, uh, but also twice in the Gospels, only at the transfiguration of Jesus. The transfiguration, the disciples witness a radical change in the appearance of Jesus. Their rabbi wasn't just wearing new clothes. He underwent a comprehensive alteration, revealing the truth, the glory hidden beneath his humanity. The same kind of transformation occurs inside us when Jesus lives within us. Changed by his presence, we begin to grow in his likeness, conforming less to the world and more to his character and purpose. The word used for renewal, however, clarifies the promise of our transformation even more clearly. Clearly, the renewal Paul talks about here is an effect. It is a consequence of Jesus moving and working in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Growing more like Jesus is, of course, an action. It's a choice that we participate in. But it begins with Jesus getting inside and resetting the course that sin has so thoroughly confused. Jesus is always pointing us again and again and again in the right direction. Paul understands our renewal happens to us because of what Jesus does in us. Think of it. A little bit like this. An old house that has not been updated in years never begins its own restoration. We never drive by an abandoned home and think, oh, it fixed itself. Renewal begins when the person who buys it moves in and decides to fix it so it can be a home again. That happens to us in Jesus. C.S. Lewis Uh, extends the analogy uh, much better than I can, and he writes this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But Presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What is he doing? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one that you thought. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live there himself. Church, we are always called to grow in our faith. But the process begins with Jesus, and it is Jesus who oversees every step of our transformation. Stepping into the deeper waters of discipleship conforms our heart, our mind, and soul to the character of our Lord and Savior. But we do not navigate this transformation alone. Jesus directs our growth. He restores our vision so we might see the world clearly, reordering our desires So we can seek him in the ways of his kingdom and eventually be people that have not only been renewed, but are free to help others begin the process in their own lives. With Jesus leading the way, every step of the staircase leads us into a more intimate relationship with God the Father allowing us to be the kind of people that we are always meant to be. The great hope of the gospel isn't just that we will change, but that we can forever trust the one who is doing the changing. So friend, let us trust the one who is making us new creations. Let our hearts be conformed not to the ways of this world, but to the ways of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you.